Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast Seminar. Today's guest is Lynn Alden, a macroeconomist who's a relative newcomer to Bitcoin, but her analysis over the last year or so and the articles that she has written have been some of the best and most thorough 
pieces that you could read about the case for Bitcoin from the perspective of somebody who's analyzing the macroeconomy and who makes the case for Bitcoin from first principles and why Bitcoin is relevant to investors today. So we're going to be discussing Lynn's case for Bitcoin. Lynn has also written on whether Bitcoin is a Ponzi scheme or not. So we're going to be discussing that. And then we're going to switch to a more of a macro discussion on the global macro climate and what Lynn's work on Japan can tell us and teach us about what's going on. So Lynn, thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Great. So I wanted to first begin with if you could just give us your case for Bitcoin. If you're talking to non-Bitcoiners, what do you tell them about why they should invest with Bitcoin? Yeah. So basically what we're looking at is an invention of a new type of self-custodied asset. And if you look at all the different types of assets that exist in the world, there are only a handful of ones that that you can self-custody that are portable uh, and that you can basically transact with someone without a centralized third party overseeing that transaction. And so one of them obviously is cash, physical cash. Uh, the problem with that is it's not internet native. And also if you hold cash outside of a banking system, it, it, it loses value over the long run because it's inflating away. You're not earning interest on it. But these days, even if you have in the bank, you're still probably not keeping up with inflation. And so it has uses for that purpose, but it's not a great store of value. Then, of course, there's precious metals. They've, they've been the longest running self-custodied asset. And they, for lack of a better word, they've been the best technology that humanity has had for that purpose for a very long time. Some of the few downsides of precious metals are, again, that they're not internet native. And so they have various issues there. And so what's interesting is that with Bitcoin, they brought together a number of technologies, such as blockchain, proof of work that others had developed into a package that for the first time created true digital scarcity and basically made the third type of asset that can be self-custodied and that can be exchanged with someone without a centralized third party. And then this one, of course, is the first one that is digital native. And then so from there, you can look at the, the properties of it. You can look at the pre-programmed monetary policy compared to the monetary policy of fiat currencies, and people can make a decision about whether they want to allocate to that asset. And so for me, when I made the case for Bitcoin back in my research service, it was April 2020, and then publicly in July uh, 2020, it was basically the idea that the combination of the macro factors, so the very broad, the fast increase in broad money supply that we were seeing and we're going to continue to see, combined with the fact that it was at an attractive point in its halving cycle, it had been through a lengthy consolidation, and, and basically halving was happening, which is generally where Bitcoin experiences a supply shock and therefore does very well in price. And so basically there were a bunch of forces coming together that in my view made it an attractive uh, asset to begin holding and that it reached the point where most people should have a non-zero position in my view. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is very much uh, our bread and butter in this corner of the internet. We're always harping on about uh, the scarcity of Bitcoin and the fact that it's digitally native. And then you mentioned the halving as well and the supply shock. I'm wondering what is your opinions of how significant it is and also the stock to flow model, which tries to model this relationship. What are your thoughts on that? So I view that the halving itself is, is very important for Bitcoin's price appreciation and cycle so far. I think that's been an important part of, it, of how the algorithm works and how it kind of uh, forces adoption over time. And that comes from just having a history of investing in commodity markets where if demand's pretty persistent, but you have some sort of supply shock, that has to get resolved with increased price, unless you were to have some sort of demand collapse or something. And so Bitcoin goes through this period where it, it has a certain monetary policy. There's a kind of a, a balance of supply and demand establishes itself. And then pre-programmed supply having occurs. And so that starts putting upper 
upward pressure on the price because demand didn't really change from that. And then eventually that, that starts pushing up price and then momentum traders jump on board and that pushes up the price even more. And that gives Bitcoin a lot more public awareness. That gets a lot of FOMO people on board. And so it's, kind of, it's one of those things where they say like come for the price action and stay for the revolution where first they're in it because it's going up and then they go down the rabbit hole, learn more about it. And it just, that's how it, it kind of goes up its S curve of adoption and becomes monetized. Now, as for specific models that track how the price should behave relative to that, I'm kind of agnostic on that. For example, I found Plan B's charts very helpful. Uh, I think one of the key insights about Bitcoin is a lot of people, if you see financial media that are always calling Bitcoin a bubble, they're often looking at a linear price chart. And they just see, they look at Bitcoin, they see the past history is like almost zero on that graph because they're looking at it in linear terms and then it just goes up like vertical and then they're calling it a bubble. Whereas if you zoom out and look at it on the logarithmic chart, especially if you then put the halving events on that chart, that's a very different thing you're looking at suddenly. It looks a lot more reasonable and algorithmic rather than bubblicious. And so I think his charts are extremely helpful. I also think the idea of basically a monetary asset has to have a reasonably high stock to flow ratio, which is why gold is monetized, silver is partially monetized historically, but then something like copper or oil are not monetized in addition to other qualities that they're less value dense and things like that. And so you know, the fact that Bitcoin's stock to flow ratio goes up over time is an important part of its monetization, but I don't have a specific price forecast based on where it should be based on that, other than that I think that those halvings and that overall thing plays a big role in its, its appreciation. So I'm wondering why you're skeptical of putting specific price targets on it. Because, I mean, I, I obviously I agree with the, what you were saying in terms of the having the stock to flow. And in my mind, the way that I look at it is that what the model essentially is saying is it's looking at the average relationship between the stock to flow and the price, and then it projects it going forward. I find it absolutely astonishing that over the last two years since the model has come out, we've more or less stayed within one standard deviation of, of the price. When the model first came out, I remember my initial reaction was, this is obviously stupid. There's no way that uh, we could put a numerical estimate on this. So yes, we're going to get... I used to think that, yeah, after the halving, there's going to be a big rise in the Bitcoin price. But I thought that there's no way that that historical data can tell us what's going to happen to the price in the future. We know it's going to go up after the halving. We know there's going to be a big bull run and a crash. But the idea that we could estimate where the bull run ends, I found to be completely heretic at that point, particularly for me coming from an Austrian background where you can't make quantitative predictions about issues of human affairs. But it seems to be holding out so well so far, astonishingly well. I mean, if you look at the chart, it's almost like there's something drawing the price to the prediction. It, it goes a little bit above and then it goes a little bit below and then it just keeps oscillating around it. It's really hard to dismiss it and it keeps getting harder. So I'm wondering if you could make the case for why we should be skeptical of these uh, numbers. I guess in my view, it's always good to be skeptical in general. I think the default case is being skeptical. And, and so I've not positioned myself as someone who's in opposition of that model. It's just more like I'm agnostic about it. And so I guess if I were to play devil's advocate, I would point out that even though it's, it's a, in the grand scheme of Bitcoin, it's a fairly new model. And so a lot of the model fit is backtested. And so, of course, the big thing was there. People were arguing that it was too, too backtested. But then, as you pointed out, since it's been created, the next two years or so of Bitcoin performance has gone in very well in line with the model. And so overall, 
I think it's the model has certainly shown more validity over the past couple of years because it's become more forward-looking and, and accurate in that sense. But overall, it's not a huge sample size to work with. Basically, it expected a big increase. We got a big increase. And so I wouldn't say, okay, now this is the model that I'm going to use for the next yeah. five to 10 years to judge Bitcoin prices. But I think it's one of those things where that phrase, like all models are wrong, but some are useful. So it's certainly a model that I'm going to be aware of. It's in my toolkit for things that I'm watching, I would say. Another thing I'd point out is that he has two main models at this point. He has like the cross-asset model, and then he's got the more original model. And they have two different price targets. And so basically, ultimately, you can say one of them is either overshooting or undershooting. And both of them arrive at what they're doing with, with slightly different logic, but similar logic. And so there's going to be a, a variance there between how it's going to work out. And so I think it's one of those things where it could be tracking something and it's not necessarily that specific thing, which is the sense that because there's persistent demand for it, we can track that these supply shocks are going to happen and then that pushes a price. And when you take into account Metcalf's law and network effects and overall, especially because in Bitcoin's case, unlike say email usage, Bitcoin's network effects are appreciative to price, right? Because it's not like a user adoption of something that doesn't really result in the underlying protocol appreciating price. So for Bitcoin, that is, it's a monetary appreciation. And so overall, I think it's a good way of thinking about it. It's just that I still use it as one kind of tool or one way of looking at it among many, rather than saying like, this is the model that's going to play out, at least yeah. in my view. Yeah. I guess if I could also take the devil's advocate side, I'd say it's absolutely astonishing that the model has held for those two years. And it predicted that there was going to be a big rise after the halving, and that did come to pass, similar to the previous two halvings. But I guess there's still one big question left, which is, will we end up landing or stabilizing around the $100,000 range, which is what the S2F model would predict, or the 280000 range, which is the S2FX model? We've had plan B over here, and we've discussed this with him, and he prefers the S2FX model, but I tend to prefer the S2F model because I think it's a more reasonable specification because it's time series and because it doesn't rely on data for gold and silver and real estate, which is very bad data. And we don't know how much gold there is. And if you take out those little points of gold data, gold and silver, and then you end up with the time series anyways, it's no different from the time series. And I think the time series is more interesting and more robust as an analysis because you see it approaching with time. And we know that the S2F is an exogenous variable. We know that there's no way that the Bitcoin stock to flow is being affected by the price other than small little variations in production. We know the stock to flow now is going to be around 54 this year and that's it. And there's no way around it. No matter what happens with the price, if Bitcoin was still a toy played around with 10 people using it, or if it was used by 7 billion people, we're still going to have a stock to flow this year of around 54. So the really astonishing thing for me is we took off now. It was a miracle that the airplane has taken off. We've got this model that predicted exactly when Bitcoin takes off. Now the tricky part is, can, can they can plan B nail the landing? Can we really land exactly at that range? And I think if we end up in that range, which is a pretty, some people criticize the model for saying, well, the range is quite wide. The one standard deviation is like something between or two 
two standard deviations, something between 50,000 and 300,000 or something like that over the next three years, which sounds like it's large, but really it's incredibly precise for the model because the model has running on data from less than a dollar all the way up to $100 million. So the fact that it can pinpoint this tiny range around 100,000 is quite astonishing. And if we do end up sticking around, like if we do land around that area and then we end up stabilizing sideways for three years, it's, uh, I think it's, 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 it's absolutely mind-blowing. To, to I see agree. That, yeah, that'd be very impressive for the model if it, if it does. The longer it continues to track that, and I think one of the interesting statistics about it is that the price has been both above and below the model every year. And so if that trend continues, every year that stays the case, that improves the validity of the model. And like you, I mostly look at the time series version of the model. I'm aware of both, but I, I the one I tend to, to glance at is the earlier one, the time series one. Yeah. Have you come across anything in your uh, time of analyzing macro models that tracks this in terms of its significance and in terms of its accuracy that is similar to this? Not specifically, no. I looked at my original piece. There was another analysis that was kind of uh, looking at Bitcoin priced in grams of gold. And so that removes the dollar from the, the equation. And just in general, any sort of, there's a couple of different logarithmic analyses you can do that, that kind of has those, those different price projections play out. And so, but none of them say put forth a specific thing. Saying, basically the, what made the plan B models interesting was that he really kind of put his neck out to say, this is the range I'm looking at. Whereas other models are, here's where I think it's heading. And they give a couple of different options. And so overall, right or wrong, he put out this model. And I would say whether he sticks the landing or not, I would say that his charts, uh, the ones he made, were, say, useful to me in terms of improving my understanding of Bitcoin, because you can be educated by something, even if you say, agree with it 90%, and then the other 10%, you're like, I don't know. So for example, showing you know, the, how it performs after each halving, like when he has a chart that kind of breaks down by color-coded halvings, that's, I think, ex- extremely instructive for people. So I think the model has been good for the community, regardless of how well it sticks the landing. And of course, the more it, it sticks the landing, that's even more interesting. Yeah, and I think there's something about it that is similar to Bitcoin's uh, growth itself. The natural inclination is that you're skeptical of this and it can't work. And in theory, there are a million reasons why it can't and shouldn't work. And that was the same reaction that I had about Bitcoin when I first heard about Bitcoin. And yet it continues to work. And then you need to start asking yourself, why is it that it works? Why is this Bitcoin thing? Why has government not shut it down? Why has it not been hacked? The initial reaction everybody has is it's going to get hacked, but it doesn't. And similarly, I think with this model, it just continues to... It, it, it's amazing. Like this previous crash that we had in the last few months where we went from like 65,000 down to uh, the low 50s, it looked like we were maybe achieving takeoff. We were close to leaving the one standard deviation range and then it goes right back exactly to the line and crosses it just a little bit downward and then it reverses and now it's just tracking the line again. And I think with each one of these, people say that the model is going to get priced in, that if, if this were accurate, then people would be buying, if, if they know that it's going to be a million dollars in 2025, they'll buy it now, and then it'll be a million dollars now. But no, I think with this case, pricing in the model is going to happen by people basically selling and buying when we're above the line or below the line. If you're above the line, you think, oh, we're going to go down, and then we sell it. And I think 
it, it might be that this is the next big arbitrage trade. People who have a lot of capital and a lot of uh, time to play markets with it will start arbitraging around the predictions of this model. I think we may be beginning to see this. I think there's definitely a lot of analysts who will have had their head turned by this. And it, it's interesting to think if we'll be tracking the line more closely because people expect this to be the case. Yeah, and there's been debates about, say, whether or not the halving is priced in and things like that. And my view is that if, say, the majority of, of participants agree with the model, then a lot of it would be priced in. But because there's inherent skepticism, there's different opinions on Bitcoin, it's still a very small percentage of, of people in the world own Bitcoin still. I mean, even though it's... Yeah, it's gone up a ton, but it's still actually a small asset in the grand scheme of things. And so basically until that becomes so dominant that it's self-fulfilling, it's almost by definition not priced in. And Absolutely. so e- even in my initial piece where I'm like uh, laying out my case for Bitcoin back in July, I say reference the stock to flow model, but I'm like, ultimately, I don't know what the price is going to be. I think I have a high conviction it's going to be a lot north of here, but I don't know the multiple that it's going to go north of here. And so I think there's a lot of participants like that where you say, okay, the stock to flow model is interesting but they're not, say, basing everything around that. And also just from investing in commodity markets and see how those behave, there are situations where a long-term investor can see a supply shock forming years in advance, but the market, the price doesn't really start to move until it kind of starts to happen. And, And so from people watching the uranium market or watching the copper market, people have been pointing out that there are certain deficits building out, say, X number of years in the future. And it's not until some catalyst start happening that price appreciation starts playing out. And so the, the majority of the market does not just price it out far in advance. It, it just kind of comes in burst as more and more people are, are kind of made aware of that situation. Yeah. And I think another aspect of it is that, um, first of all, the vast majority of people aren't into Bitcoin, but then even the people that are into Bitcoin, the conviction when it comes to Bitcoin is, uh, first of all, you need a lot of capital in order to be able to price it. And a lot of people who get into Bitcoin they can't really price it in because once you get into Bitcoin, you you flick the switch into just all in and that's it. That If you're convinced that it's going to work, then you're going to go all in, whether you think it's going to go up by 100% next year or 200 or 300 or 500%, you're all in. And if you don't believe in Bitcoin, you don't think it's going to work, then you're zero in. So there's a lot less room for people to just trade around it when it's very small. But as this grows, obviously, the margin for this increases. You start getting people that are 40% in, and then they can go longer in when they think that the model suggests a much bigger appreciation. So I think with time, we'll see it getting priced in, but I'm not sure that we're going to be getting the having priced in because I think the demand can adjust for it, but there's still, you have four years of double the supply switching down to, or four years of the supply going down. So it's a lot less coins out there. You'd require, in order to fully price it in, you'd have to have somebody who's basically able to buy up half of the coins during this period in order to bid up the price and then sell them in the next period, which is it's enormously expensive and it keeps getting more and more expensive. But I think with more and more people, we'll be seeing it uh, more. Okay, so um, switching a little bit. Well, the other thing that you were mentioning in that uh, paper was on the macro. But actually, before we go to the macro, let's stick to uh, the Ponzi scheme. Is Bitcoin a Ponzi scheme? Why not? 
Yes, I wrote that long form piece explaining my view of why it's not. And so different people have focused on the different criticisms or FUD of Bitcoin and kind of provided Bitcoin's defense. And so that was kind of my long form defense of of why I don't view uh, Bitcoin as a Ponzi scheme. And you can break that down into two main types of Ponzi schemes. So there's like the narrow definition and then the more kind of broad philosophical definition. And so the narrow definition is just outright fraud where someone's basically like like the classic like Madoff scheme where you're basically lying to investors about what you're doing with the money. You're paying off older investors with newer investors. And so what I did for that article was I went to the SEC website and they have how they define a Ponzi scheme and they list red flags of Ponzi schemes. And I kind of went point by point and compared Bitcoin to that list. And it shows that it has very little, if any, overlap with the definition of a Ponzi scheme and, and the red flags of a Ponzi scheme. And in some ways has less overlap with it than the US banking system. And so it, it basically... The idea is, if you look at pretty much any non-cash flow asset, so whether it's gold, silver, wine, collectible cars, Bitcoin, it's ultimately going to be that the market is based around you buying it with the idea that it's going to appreciate in price and that in the future, if you wanted to trade that for other goods or services or consumption of some sort, that you could. And with any of those markets, there's going to be frictional fees associated with doing so. There's basically people in the middle that are helping facilitate the liquidity of that And so they take a cut. So some people have characterized Bitcoin as a Ponzi scheme because you're paying fees to miners. There's basically, there's this finite kind of closed network and that basically older investors being paid by new investors and eventually it has to stop. Whereas as those other non-cash flow assets show, that can go on indefinitely. I mean, basically you have this kind of ongoing system of things of value trading hands and appreciating in price and people in the middle that facilitate that trade. And so I, based on that definition, I didn't view Bitcoin any different than those other non-cash flow producing assets that are, that are held as stores of value. And then another part of the narrow definition is if you look at, say, how other coins since Bitcoin have come along, in many ways, they meet the def- definition of a Ponzi more so. So it's actually, we were lucky that the first cryptocurrency was kind of done in such a, like a, a, a kind of a mature way, right? So, so Satoshi, I like to call it the immaculate conception of Bitcoin. Yeah, I think that's the perfect way to describe it because we could have had, say, in an alternative universe, let's say Satoshi put all these pieces together in the same way, but instead of, say, just putting out from the beginning, he just gave himself X number of coins first and then put it out there. And then he started five years later selling some of the coins. That would have tainted the whole project. Whereas the fact that he put it out from day one, how Finney was mining it publicly. And, and so from there on, it was anyone had access to it. And so basically, and of course, we had the periods where people didn't know what it was worth. So they bought a piece of with it and got basically there's ways to get coins out there rather than concentrated as much as they could have been. And so because it was done in a way where literally he gave the white paper before he even launched the software. So he said how it's going to work, what it's going to do, and then months later launched a software that he had already been working on, of course. But basically, he put it out there before he even had the ability to profit from it. And he kind of went through a thesis defense on that like email. If you look through the, the emails that he did on that cryptography email list, it's almost like a thesis defense where he's like putting out the paper, he's getting feedback and kind of responding to some of the feedback. And so if you look at the whole process, it was a very kind of academic, mature process rather than like a money grab. And so I just found that very interesting. And then if you back up and look at the broad sense of what a Ponzi scheme is, in the broad sense, it's anything that's not sustainable. And so we talked about how the other types of non-cash flow assets can have these indefinite sustainable markets around their products. And so if you look at Bitcoin, basically 
Bitcoin's one of those things where it does have to reach a certain size to be fully self-sustaining to make sure it has adequate security and that it reliably fills up the blocks and, and eventually transitions from a block subsidy security model to a fee-based security model. But other than certain minimum requirements being met, from there, it's just it's a self-sustaining asset, just like most of these other types of markets of non-cash flow producing items. And the one thing I compared it to is the U.S. banking system, where, you know, Basically, if literally 20% of people were, were to withdraw their money from the bank at the same time, the system falls apart. It basically, if you go through the list of, of Ponzi scheme characteristics and red flags uh, on the SEC's own website, the U.S. bank system and any other global bank system meets more of those criteria. Because, of course, one of the red flags is like uh, basically difficulty receiving payments where you contact Bernie Madoff and you say, okay, I want to pull my money out. And he says, well, I can't do it right now, but give me a month. And it's like, it, it basically, we saw actually during the pandemic crisis that many banks had to limit the amount of physical cash you could take out. There was a physical cash shortage. And also basically you, you could only withdraw so many funds. And that, that's basically a limitation of the system that's partially intentional. And so basically Bitcoin does not meet any more definitions of a of kind of a broad Ponzi scheme than any other you know, system like that. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Yeah, I agree. And I think essentially for me, the reason why I can't think of it as a Ponzi scheme is that ultimately the way that a Ponzi scheme works is that there are some underlying assets and the person running the Ponzi scheme is issuing more and more claims onto the same amount of assets and convincing the people that are buying that they're getting claims on more assets. And so, for instance, you've got an investment business and you have, <clears throat> like this is what Madoff did, he had about a billion dollars, I think, of actual assets. But he had $50 billion worth of investors who thought they had $50 billion with him. And as long as they all didn't come in at the same time and ask for their $50 billion, then the thing continued to swim along fine. But that can't exist in Bitcoin because A, Bitcoin isn't a claim on any asset. You know, Bitcoin doesn't promise you to do anything. It says you buy this thing and you can just hobble it and look at it uh, being pretty. You can use it to pay transaction fees. That's all you can do with it. It's not redeemable in something else. And so there's no opportunity for somebody to create that kind of fraud 
in that where each Bitcoin, say, allow or entitles you to one share of Apple or one ounce of gold. And then they have a big pot of gold and they issuing Bitcoin backed by that gold. And then they start issuing more Bitcoin than the gold. That's a Ponzi scheme. But first of all, there's no pot of gold. There's no shares of Apple. There's no bonds or anything that is underlying it. It's just the coin itself. So you're already accepting the fact that you're buying this thing for its intrinsic, for its own sake, not for the sake of exchanging it for something else, which is not the case with Madoff. You're getting a share of his stash of bonds and stocks with the promise that you could one day redeem them and sell them out. And the second thing is that there's no Madoff in Bitcoin. There's no person out there who can make more Bitcoins. And I think if you followed Bitcoin over the last 10, 12 years, you saw what has happened to anybody who's tried to make more Bitcoins. They've all failed at it and they can't make it. And so if there was a mechanism for making more Bitcoins surreptitiously without people finding out, then yeah, you could say that you're developing that monetary premium into Bitcoin and then you're creating new Bitcoins without anybody finding out. That's effectively also like being uh, made of. And that's effectively what BitConnect was, I think. One day, everybody was on the BitConnect scam, woke up and found out that the price had tanked because the people behind it had made an enormous amount of new tokens and they sent them to exchange it and they sold them. And so basically they took away all the monetary energy that is stored in the existing tokens and took them out. And that's why Bitcoin can't be a Ponzi scheme because nobody can make more than 21 million because you run your own node. And it's your node that decides the rules of the network. And so if somebody wants to make more than 21 million uh, Bitcoin, that can't affect your Bitcoins. That affects them and their Bitcoins. And they've just invented a new altcoin. Which brings me to the other question. What do you think about altcoins? Are they Ponzi schemes in general or in uh, specific cases? Sure. And I'll answer two. One is just going back for a second. I, I think also kind of adding to your point. One of the things that a Ponzi scheme relies on is secrecy. Basically, the investor has to be obscured from the truth for some reason. And if they knew the truth, then they would choose differently. Whereas the whole point of Bitcoin is that it's open source. Anyone can verify it. They basically can analyze it and then compare it to other asset classes or other coins. And they can make their own decision about whether or not they want to purchase into it. So that's one of the things that's inherently not just not a Ponzi scheme, but literally the opposite of a Ponzi scheme, where it's based on kind of radical transparency. And so, and then going to your second point about the altcoins, I guess my view is that I don't predefine any altcoin as a Ponzi scheme or fraud, but they certainly have a very high ratio of being one. And I don't personally, like I've kind of pushed back on the notion of people investing in altcoins and trying to make sure that people are aware of the risks and the rather terrible track record that altcoins have had since the inception. Because one of the inherent kind of risks of an altcoin is that they're virtually all centralized. And so if I'm being generous with altcoins, I would say at best, they're more like equities where a centralized development team is proposing a system that can do some service, right? some platform for doing something. They have tokens associated with it, but I don't view them as money because there's fewer people that can then change the monetary policy. And so you're more like you're betting on a management team. You're betting on their ability to make that into reality and to basically tweak their system until it, it, it does its purpose properly. And so at best, I would view them as in a different category as Bitcoin. And then at worst, out of that whole massive category, there's like a 99.9% failure rate of those tokens. And so there's basically not a, a good risk reward for people venturing into that space, in, in my view, too much. 
Yeah, I think I agree. And I think I, I would uh, go perhaps a little bit further than you and say that any token that claims to be a, a utility token is by definition a Ponzi scheme because it, that's like a casino chip that appreciates beyond the value of the casino uh, of the money that's redeemable for. So you have a casino chip that says this is $1,000, which you can use to bet on $1,000 in our casino. But if you find that chip being sold for $5,000 instead of $1,000, then that's accruing a monetary premium, which it has no business accruing. I, I don't see any of these tokens having any reason to accrue monetary premium. And the time when altcoins were marketing themselves as being out there to make money, I think that has passed generally. Now they've switched to all kinds of buzzwords about we're using this for utility and we're using this for that or the other thing. But ultimately, that doesn't matter. Nobody buys Chuck E. Cheese tokens and keeps them at home as a cash balance. You hold your cash balance in the most liquid commodities and in the ones that have the best saleability across space and across time. Under a monetary system like the gold standard, and I think under a universal Bitcoin standard, that question is settled because you just hold one token, which is the one that has the best saleability across space and across time. You can send gold uh, across the world uh, through the gold banking system, and you can send it to your future self because it holds on to its value very well into the future. So then you just hold cash balances in the one most liquid, most saleable good. Now, under the fiat partial barter system, you have to hold cash balances in different assets. So you want to hold dollars because you're able to send these uh, quickly around the world and uh, make payments with them. And you might want to hold gold or uh, some other form of uh, monetary asset for the future because that's better at holding on to its value into the future. But under no condition do you want to hold Chuck E. Cheese tokens or casino tokens. No matter how often you go to the casino, you keep your cash balance in dollars. When you go to the casino, you give them your dollars, you take the chips, and then you gamble, and then you cash out if you have anything left at the end. There's no reason to carry the thing around. And this honesty aspect of it is that, well, everybody's going to use our apps and our smart contract platform or whatever. And because they're going to be using it, then our uh, token is going to be more expensive. And that for me is casino saying, hey, here, build a checking account and a saving account with our tokens because we're going to be getting a lot of gamblers. And we're going to be buying our tokens. The, the gamblers aren't bidding up the price of the token. If they are going to be using it, they're just going to go and buy it when they need it and get rid of it. And we haven't seen any and any of these supposed utility tokens actually develop any actual utility where you need it in order to do something on the internet that you can't do without it. And then, of course, there's the aspect of them not being transparent, as you said. For most altcoins, you can't really run your uh, own full node, so you can't verify anything. So you're just running by what uh, other people are saying. And of course, it's centralized, so they can change all the code, they can change the supply, as they've done in many of these altcoins. They keep changing the supply, and there's no reason why they can't change it again. And I think eventually they're going to be learning, I think, the inflationary lesson that made uh, Bitcoin possible, which is that if you give people the ability to print money, they're going to find a way to abuse it. And the incentive for the insider who's close to the printer is always different from the outsider who's holding the token. And so... If your token has a guy next to the printer, you're eventually going to have a bad time. There's going to come a time and place where they have a good reason to run that printer into overdrive. And it's, uh, it's not going to be pretty then, I think. Yeah, separating Bitcoin from altcoins was an important part of my thesis for going long. And so my first article on Bitcoin was back in late 2017, after it had that big run up that year. 
And so that was my first piece on Bitcoin and the broader cryptocurrency space. And so when I analyzed it then, I basically recognized a lot of the useful aspects of Bitcoin and was interested in it and basically had good things to say about it. But the reason I passed on it, or one of the reasons I passed on it, there were kind of two main reasons. One is we just had that huge run up in price. And there's a lot of euphoria at the time. And that was like November or so. It was like, I started writing the article at like 6,000. By the time I was done writing the article, it was like $8,000. And so I was, this is a very euphoric space right here. And I didn't have a lot of ways to price it back then. I had a couple models actually that I applied, but overall it was, there's a huge variance here. And when you have a huge variance combined with euphoria, there's a risk. And then two, I was saying, okay, so Bitcoin units are scarce. But my concern at the time was, okay, we just had the Bitcoin versus Bitcoin cash split. And then so then we have, at that time, say Ethereum was doing very well in price. And it's okay, if anyone can make a new cryptocurrency, and if this whole space gets diluted enough where capital flows in and goes to like the top 10 different protocols and it just kind of spreads out, then I'm concerned about even if each protocol or at least some of the protocols are scarce, if it just, if capital diffuses across so many protocols, then that scarcity gets questioned. And so that was my concern back then. And that's why I stayed out of the space. And we have, of course, had the blow off top and then we had a big crash. We had a a multi-year consolidation and I kept watching the space and I saw that, okay, so Bitcoin retained a lot of its market share after that bear market. Bitcoin dominance went back up for a while. We saw a lot of that era of coins basically just go into the dustbin of history. We saw that the the Bitcoin versus Bitcoin cash split was settled by the market in terms of market capitalization, hash rate, number of nodes, the types of hardware, uh, like uh, say wallet makers that focus on Bitcoin versus Bitcoin cash by, by pretty much any way of measuring a network effect, Bitcoin won out. And then, so basically I said, okay, so as long as Bitcoin can retain the by far the dominant network effect for basically being the hard money of that space, well, then its scarcity is valid. And so as that kind of test played out, and I also saw like institutional custodian technologies kind of come on board where where basically the space was ready for bigger pools of capital to come in. And that's why as we went forward into 2020, I was kind of increasingly more interested in the space. And when we had that big you know, liquidity crash in March and, and April, that's when I said, okay, now, even though Bitcoin was bouncing up from those March lows, it was like 7,000 a coin. And it was ironically the same price that I passed on it two and a half years earlier. But I said, okay, it's the same price, but it's been de-risked in the sense that it's had this multi-year consolidation. We have the halving coming up and Bitcoin's network effect has withstood another two and a half years of assaults from these other ecosystems. And so Bitcoin's path-dependent network effect continues to be valid. And so that was an important part of me saying, okay, I'm actually now I, it kind of filled in a few of the concerns I had about Bitcoin. And that's what made me kind of switch from kind of a skeptical neutral to like a pretty high conviction bull. Yeah, I agree entirely. I remember when we had Saylor, Michael Saylor on, he said basically March 2020 uh, was the highest reward to risk ratio in Bitcoin's history, because at that point, you'd had the threat of altcoins and the hard forks eliminated, as you were saying, and uh, you had the infrastructure being built and you had all these this massive runway ahead of Bitcoin to be built on top of it. Plus, then you had all the uh, macro uh, climate, which made things set up. And yeah, I think ultimately the way that I would look at it is that Bitcoin's value proposition in terms of being immutable and in terms of being truly decentralized cannot be compromised because you can't make another immutable digital currency. We've seen a lot of people try. Nobody has made it. The, The second biggest currency, which has the biggest claim toward being decentralized, we saw that when when the people in charge of the 
currency had their currency hacked, they went ahead and uh, just rolled it back. So there's nothing to stop them from changing the supply again and making all kinds of different changes for it. And so, as, as I've said before, in one of these uh, episodes here, we, we call, I think it was called the shitcoin standard. Shitcoins, essentially, they cannibalize each other rather than cannibalizing Bitcoin. We, we see Bitcoin continue to grow, but we see them eating into each other's value proposition. But I guess that brings us to the macro picture. So what are your general impressions on the global macro scene currently, how things are headed, and why does it make Bitcoin so attractive? Yes, my biggest framework for this was inspired by Ray Dalio years ago, which is the conception of the long-term debt cycle. And so when we look at the five to 10 year credit cycle, most of us are familiar with that where you have builds up and build up in, in, in debt and then either policy changes or an external catalyst comes along and kind of forces an economic shock and then a period of deleveraging. And now, but in our modern system, that period of deleveraging gets short circuited. So they cut rates, they do fiscal support. And so debt as a percentage of GDP never falls all the way back to the starting point of that cycle and interest rates hit lower lows than the previous cycle. And so when you string multiple of those business cycles together, debt as a percentage of GDP gets higher and higher. Uh, the system gets more and more leveraged until it's, it's at its breaking point. And then eventually you get to a cycle where interest rates hit zero and you can't really do much more. And so instead, the central bank turns to asset purchases or another basically different mechanisms for increasing the monetary base. And so in the 1930s, that was devaluing dollar versus gold. In 2008, that was quantitative easing. And so you, you get into expanding the monetary base and that only goes so far. And eventually they combine that with kind of a fiscal mechanism that gets that money out into the public. And so back in the 1940s, the last time we went through this kind of long-term cycle was the 30s and 40s. That's the last time that interest rates hit zero, debt hit a very high level. And so generally, when you go through that period, you have kind of a private debt bubble that collapses. And so we saw that in in the early 1930s, we saw it again in 2008. And then after that, some number of years later, you, then you have a public debt bubble, which is basically the response to that, trying to reflate that private debt bubble collapsing. And so in the 1940s, you had the, the public debt bubble. And then in the 2020 so far, we've had a, a, the, kind of the second public debt bubble. So it's always like, you know, there's always kind of a one-two punch associated with these long-term debt cycles playing out. And the earlier part of that, the, the private debt bubble, tends to be a more disinflationary outcome while it plays through. But then the public debt bubble tends to be more inflationary outcome. And so because now we're seeing a very sharp increase in the broad money supply compared to any other time since World War II, now that basically the number of dollars in the system is going up dramatically, the number of euros are going up dramatically, the number of yen are going up dramatically, uh, that basically improves the case for having stores of value that have some degree of they're finite in some way. And so that could be, say, commodity producers that own copper deposits that are pretty scarce, right? So things like that, all sorts of real assets. But then of course, one of the more accessible ones in this environment is Bitcoin. And so anyone with a smartphone or access to the internet can buy Bitcoin. And it's got this, this pre-programmed monetary policy uh, supply cap. And so when you're contrasting that kind of that tightening model compared to the very loose model that we see with fiat currencies, that's basically the best marketing that Bitcoin could ever have. And so Basically, it makes Bitcoin, as long as that network effect continues to hold as it has for over 12 years now, that makes it a very attractive alternative, basically, currency than something like the dollar or euros or yen. Yeah. I'm curious. You mentioned the 30s and 2008. Um, wouldn't you put 1970s as well in that bucket? 
As far as the long-term debt cycle, no, because even though that was an inflationary period, in many ways, that was a very that was a very different reason. There was kind of two big reasons there. One is you were at kind of the midpoint of the cycle. So you had high loan growth and you had pretty big deficits. And then debt as a percentage of GDP was actually very low going into that period because a lot of the debt was inflated away in the 40s. And then it started to inflate away in the 60s and 70s. And so that was, in many ways, a very different environment. What you had there was a, a change in the global monetary system structure. And so when you had that breakdown from the Bretton Woods system to the petrodollar system, that was a whole another catalyst for why you had a currency devaluation. And so the long-term debt cycle isn't the only way that you get a currency devaluation. I mean, basically, going back to the long-term debt cycle thing, what makes the end of a long-term debt cycle different than the end of a normal credit cycle is that it's usually accompanied by some big currency devaluation. Because rather than deleveraging the debts not nominally, they deleverage them by increasing the amount of money in the system so that, say, the, the debt to broad money supply ratio goes down a lot because you're changing the denominator. And so in the 70s, you had a different environment where basically the global monetary order for, for how they peg currencies and how they, they kind of back those currencies up deteriorated and then eventually broke. And so that was basically a whole different mechanism. Now, the interesting thing is that the 2020s, you could have, say, both happen at the same time. Like we're basically, I'm kind of tracking two separate long-term cycles. So one of them is the long-term debt cycle that we talked about. And then the other one is that every several decades, you generally also have a shift in the the way that the global monetary system is structured. Usually the previous one hits some sort of breaking point. Whatever aspect of it was imperfect and unsustainable starts kind of running into its head. And that's when something has to shift and kind of be reset. And so basically the 2020s decade could be a period where, where both of those cycles kind of converge. And so I, I separate them in, into two separate outcomes rather than saying that the 70s was anything mm -hmm. like the 40s because in many ways they were quite different. So in the 70s, we didn't have massive public debt, but a horse that I always like to beat is that in the 1971 depegging the dollar from gold was a default. It was a default on public debt. It was the government being defaulting on its uh, promise to redeem uh, the dollars for uh, gold. So does that change your analysis in any way if you think about it as a default? Because Nixon effectively defaulted on their promises at the, at the central bank. I do view it as a default. That's kind of also how I've characterized it in the past. Like I have an article that kind of shows all the different times that treasuries defaulted. And so that was one of them. Another one was the, the 30s because you had the treasury was a, a certain amount of dollars and the dollars was a certain amount of gold. And then they changed how much gold the dollars were worth. And so the 70s were another version of that where uh, they, just, they just took away the whole gold tie altogether. And so I do view those as defaults. The kind of the big difference was that in the 70s, even though you had a default, debt as a percentage of GDP was low, both for, for public balance sheets and for private balance sheets. So in there, the issue was not that debt to GDP was high. It was that debt compared to the gold reserves were high. And so basically the whole fault, the, the shortcoming of the Bretton Woods system is that from the beginning of that system, you saw gold reserves slowly go down. And the, the claims on those gold reserves, so basically treasuries and dollars, especially the ones that are owed by international creditors, because at that point, for Americans, gold was no like uh, dollars were no longer redeemable for gold. But for those foreign international creditors, it was still redeemable. And so you basically had that drawdown and that breaking point. And so that's why I, I characterize that a little bit different. Basically, the way that that plays out tends to be a little bit different than how a long-term debt cycle plays out. 
And so it's not a totally a separate thing, but I, I find that two different frameworks to kind of map out those breaking points is helpful for kind of uh, predicting the flow, like the order of outcomes that generally happen and kind of identifying which things are the breaking points where, where kind of a light switch goes off and something changes. Mm-hmm. So what do the 2020s have in, in store for us? So I view the 2020s as in many ways like the 1940s in the sense that you have a very fiscally driven monetary policy. So when we look at policymaker tools, there's periods of time where you're very driven by central bank monetary policy and then other periods where you're very driven by Congress, president, fiscal policy. And so from the 80s all the way up through the 2010s, you had different periods of both, but generally there was more monetary policy driven. And what makes the 2020s uh, kind of a, a shifting point is that kind of like the 1940s, it's very fiscally driven, which means that basically the majority of broad money supply growth that we're seeing is not due to bank lending, as it is in many decades, but is instead from government deficits. And so basically the inflation versus deflation paradigm and that, that whole kind of judging the rate of nominal GDP and all those things in part goes back to how big are the deficits that they're going to run. And basically, that's going to be a, one of the causes for different levels of inflation that we can model out going forward. And so basically, the big question to look at is what sort of fiscal packages are they going to pass? Because they're the ones that have an, a big influence on how big broad money supply is going to be and therefore what levels inflation is likely to reach. And so my overall base case is that when you combine that with the kind of the global commodity cycle, which is every 15 to 25 years, you have periods of commodity oversupply. And then because it's cheap, no one really brings new supply into the market. And eventually those supplies dwindle, demand catches back up, and eventually commodities get expensive. And you go through, you know, that bull market in commodities and that encourages those producers to go and find more of those commodities and bring more supply to market. And so the past decade was characterized by commodity oversupply. And so I think the 2020s, the further we go into it, the more it's characterized by commodity shortages. And so if you look at copper, for example, we've also had big reductions in CapEx for oil and gas. There's a uranium uh, shortage, and that's, of course, important for a big part of the, the, the global electrical fleet. And so basically, as we go deeper in the 2020s, the combination of a very fiscally driven broad money supply growth and commodities that are not as abundant as they were previous decade tilts everything towards inflation compared to the the prior decade. Yeah, it's it's very hard to keep making a case against inflation anymore. As you point out, when money creation is primarily driven by the banking system, you will get inflation. It's not going to be like you're on a gold standard generally. It's going to be faster money supply growth. But to an extent, it's self-correcting because the faster the money supply grows, the more uh, bubbles you get, the more over-exuberance, and then you're likely to get crashes. And then uh, the crashes are deflationary, and so they reduce the money supply. So as long as, uh, and, and I'm writing this, the, the, the fiat standard right now, where I discuss money creation in the fiat system in the terms of, that we've learned from Bitcoin, from looking at uh, money creation in Bitcoin, And it's self-correcting under a credit system because there's credit being created, but you can't just keep creating credit forever. There's limits on how much banks can lend that have nothing to do with the fractional reserve ratio. It's just they need to find businesses that want to borrow. And the more that they lend out to undeserving borrowers, the more defaults they get. And so that basically brings the house of cards crashing down. So it's harder to build a house of cards 
when you're trying to build it with credit. It keeps crashing it down a little bit. And that's in my mind what has allowed national currencies to survive for an entire century without real gold backing. But I think, yeah, we're in a different ballgame now when the credit creation process is essentially being taken out of the equation and central banks and governments are just printing out money and handing it over to people. That money is just going to be spent. It can't get destroyed. There's no deflationary correction that can bring this down. So, yeah, I think the case is accurate. And, and what do you think of the idea of central bank digital currencies being introduced as an alternative here? Uh, so it looks like we're slowly going in that direction. And so one of the differences between, say, if you look at the, the 2020s and the 1940s and how they're similar versus the 1970s, which is in some ways is different, is when you look at how central banks respond to inflation. And so in the 1940s, when they had high inflation due to basically the large fiscal expansion that was needed at the time, you had the spikes in inflation. And rather than raise rates to quell that inflation, they actually capped yields. So they, they held short-term rates at near zero. And then even for the longer end of the treasury curve, the central bank actually capped them at 2.5%. So if you look at the full course of the decade, you had these big spikes in inflation that two of those spikes reached double digits. One of them reached high single digits. And yet uh, 10-year treasury yields were just like perfectly flat at 2.5% the entire decade. And of course, anyone holding them got a devaluation. And the 70s were different because since federal debt as a percentage of GDP was low, and, and generally private debt was pretty low as a percentage of GDP, the, the central bank was able to raise rates to combat that inflation. And of course, they were slow to do so throughout the 70s. And it was only under Volcker that they finally raised them enough to, to kind of counteract that. And so the 2020s in many ways looks more like the 40s, where because federal debt as a percentage of GDP is so high, but the only thing kind of keeping that in check is the fact that interest rates on that debt are pretty low. And so if they were to raise rates substantially, that would render basically the payments on interest would be so high that would cause all sorts of issues. And so we're in an environment more like the 40s where even if they were to get inflation, they'd be unlikely to be able to, their tools to combat that are somewhat limited in this environment because it would cause so much kind of nominal crashes in, in public and private finances. And so you know, generally, we're, as we kind of go forward, they, one of their ways is kind of in some ways resetting the system or finding other ways to run their system. And so rather than basically in all these different eras, they kind of do a soft default on the previous system and move towards another system. And of course, the order that we're going down the central bank uh, digital currency route is partially tied to their incentives around the current system. And so, for example, because the Federal Reserve is at the heart of the current petrodollar system, they're among the slowest to want to change to a new system because when you're the king of a current system, you're less inclined to, to want to go to a new system. Whereas if you are on the outskirts of the current system, you have a, more of an incentive to, to move to the next system. And so that's why, for example, we see China spearheading central bank digital currencies. It's the combination of they want to be able to buy commodities, for example, in their own currency. They want to have you know more control over that. And then two, of course, because China is very kind of an anti-privacy state. They want to be able to monitor everything and they want to be able to control everything. They like that additional control that central bank digital currencies provide. And then you have kind of, as you go down the chain, you, you have Europe's also interested in central bank digital currencies. And then towards the slower end of the spectrum is the Fed, where they're the king of the current system. And so they've been moving less quickly on that. But of course, they're also being dragged along by some of those others. And so, so one of the views out there is the idea that if central bank digital currencies were, were created, 
then it would render Bitcoin irrelevant. And I always found that silly because in many ways they have opposite principles of, of Bitcoin because that, that gives policymakers even more fine-tuning capability for monetary policy. And so basically they currently have a handful of tools they can use and central bank digital currencies expands the number of tools that centralized policymakers have to control those currencies. And that just further makes that type of currency different than Bitcoin. It, it basically puts that even more on the other end of the spectrum of a decentralized, unchanging monetary policy. And the only thing that they have in common is that they're, they're more inherently digital, but the, the, the commonality stops there. You're still looking at you know, one currency that has a very f- flexible supply that you cannot self, it basically reduces your ability to self-custody it, uh, basically makes it always controlled by the centralized authority. Well, then you have Bitcoin where that, that the fact that its monetary policy is unchanging and you can self-custody it is, is all that more important in that environment. I, I agree entirely. I always say uh, digital currencies are not competition for Bitcoin. They are an advertisement for Bitcoin. Bitcoin's value proposition is an uncensorable and immutable monetary policy. And the central bank digital currencies are built precisely for the opposite of that. And I think the the digital aspect is kind of a non-issue because all existing national currencies are predominantly digital. More than 90% of dollars out there are digital. So there's a few dollars that are printed out into physical paper for almost like souvenir purposes. And we also have physical Bitcoin in the form of open dimes and other bare asset Bitcoins. But ultimately, what really matters is the underlying technology. And in the case of Bitcoin, it's uh, immutability. But yeah, and I also agree with you that I think we are probably, it's the, the upgrade, if you want to call it an upgrade, to central bank digital currencies is being marketed as if we're going to replace your clunky paper money with uh, fast and efficient digital money as if it's just like a tech upgrade. But I think the tech upgrade side of it requires very little changes. So you, you don't have to have a new digital currency in order to make dollars faster. You can make dollars faster by just uh, running a little bit better database uh, technology in, on the back end of banks and central banks, and then it gets faster. I think ultimately what's actually happening is I suspect in the dimension of China, I think we're headed toward a possibly like a, a new international global reserve currency that's going to undermine the dollar to the benefit of the Chinese. And I think the spirit of international cooperation, if you want to call it that, that we've seen in the last year, where you know the, the entire planet was um, marching along to the tune of the World Health Organization in terms of what you should do take off your masks, put you on your masks, uh, stay home, isolate, keep your kids away from school. The, the, the way that everybody in the entire planet just swallowed all of this insanity, which we've had hundreds of years of protocols for dealing with disease outbreaks. And these notions of just locking everybody up, they'd been discussed before. And then suddenly all of that went out the window. And because it was an emergency, which is the worst thing that you can do in an emergency, is just get rid of all of the Um, plans that you had, because they're what are going to ground you. And we got rid of all of that very quickly all over the world. And everybody went along with the plans of the World Health Organization, which was having degree influenced by the Chinese government. So I think we, we can anticipate something similar happening with monetary reform, I think, over the next few years, where the Chinese managed to get a significant uh, improvement in this. And I think we could have something like a digital SDR that is issued by the IMF as the sort of proto-global central bank, similar in its role to what the World Health Organization was doing with this pandemic. We'll have the IMF issue this digital SDR, 
And then that would be used to back up national central bank digital currencies. And effectively, they'll default on their dollar obligations and all of the existing national currency obligations. Governments are just going to say essentially something like, oh, well, uh, <laughs> the dollar stopped working because it's analog. And that's why you know, the, the, the prices are crashing. But don't worry, we are upgrading you to something digital. It's fast and it's like Bitcoin and it's amazing. And here you go. So exchange your $10,000 of US dollars for 10 new CBDC of dollars. And now we have a new global currency. I think the impact of that is going to be a much bigger role for China uh, internationally, economically. And correction of the imbalances that the US uh, dollar system creates, because the US is just printing money and other countries need to produce things for the US and then the other countries need to prop up the dollar by buying on to more dollars and hoping that it doesn't crash. So do you, do you think that might uh, happen or am I uh, being uh, unreasonable here? What do you think? I think that's one of the roots. And so I, I laid out, I had an article on the kind of the changing structure of the monetary system. And I laid out a couple different paths that it, it can go towards based on certain decision points. And so starting with, if you look at the current system, it's one of those things where we assume that the dollar as a global reserve asset benefits the United States. Whereas the way it's actually been going in the past few decades is that even within the United States, it only benefits kind of a small percentage of people in the United States. So people who generally work in finance uh, or work around DC or work in you know tech in some cases. Uh, whereas anyone who, for example, works in manufacturing or in sort of industrial production has actually been harmed by the current system. Because the way that the system's currently structured is that the United States made a deal with OPEC, Saudi Arabia, and other OPEC countries where they will only sell their oil in dollars to, to different countries on the world. So whether France or Japan wants to buy oil from Saudi Arabia, they have to do it in dollars, which means every country in the world needs dollars. And so that gives the U.S. the ability to print money for hard commodities. But it also makes it so that our currency is in global demand compared to other types of currencies and that ends up pushing up our trade deficit. And so if you look at the U.S. trade deficit over time, we used to be a, a strong manufacturing hub. But when we shifted from the Bretton Woods system to the petrodollar system, basically we our kind of cost for maintaining that system is that our domestic manufacturing becomes very uncompetitive. This has been described by some analysts like Luke Groman, for example, as the U.S. having Dutch disease, where basically if a country finds natural resources, that often ends up ironically displacing the other things that they were good at. And so basically, because we now export dollars, basically as part of what we do, it's displaced our other types of exports and made them less competitive. And so this system is currently structured benefits segments of the United States, and then it benefits exporters in certain of those other countries. And then there are a lot of people both inside the United States and outside the United States that are not doing well under the system because these imbalances do keep accruing where the U.S. runs these big deficits and then foreigners take those dollar surpluses and, and go ahead and buy financial assets. So it works really well if you're one of the holders of financial assets in the United States, but it doesn't really work well for a lot of other groups. And China is interesting because People often assume that if the dollar system ends as currently structured, then that means that another country has to come along and take that mantle and be the global reserve currency. Whereas I actually find that somewhat unlikely because there's no country really big enough where their currency alone 
can be kind of the central point of the system, including the United States anymore. So when the petrodollar system was started in the 70s, the United States was like 35 to 40% of global GDP. We were by far the biggest commodity importer. And then over time, the US went down to like 20% of global GDP. We became like the second biggest commodity importer. And so it's really hard to maintain that system when you're a shrinking percentage of that pie. And then even China, even on their projected growth path, is unlikely to be a big enough kind of segment to be able to do that. They also, they're aware of the, the downsides that, like we described, the, the, the Dutch disease or the export uncompetitiveness that you have if you have the system as structured. And so what China's main goal is they want to be able to buy commodities without going through the dollar-based system. They want to have some of the advantages of uh, a reserve currency without some of the drawbacks. And so I think over time, we're shifting towards a more uh, decentralized financial system, but that can take two really big paths. And so one is, as you point out, they can do like a digital SDR. And so that's one of those weird things. It's both centralized and decentralized. It's kind of like centralized decentralization where they say, okay, instead of one currency being at the heart of the whole system, we're going to have a basket of currencies at the heart of the system. But then the ironic thing is that basket is centralized. And so you have kind of that centralized way of distributing the, the, the money supply that the way that works out. And so that's one of the ways that say policymakers want to go. The question is whether or not they'll be able to make that happen. And so we've had, for example, the Bank of England, previous governor pointed in that direction. And that was also one of the original proposals all the way back uh, in the 1940s when the Bretton Woods system was constructed. The alternate option was the Bancor, was basically the SDR in a different name. And the downside, the hard part of making that system happen is that you have to have China, you have to have the United States, you have to have Europe all agree on something which in this environment is like herding cats, right? That's the challenging part in making that system kind of come to fruition. Whereas the other option that this could go is just basically a change in what we've been seeing where we see over time that central banks are diversifying the types of assets they invest in. And so, for example, with the creation of the euro, European countries buy fewer treasuries for their global reserve holdings. And then you have Russia, because they've been the target of sanctions, because they're not on friendly terms with the United States, they've de-dollarized to a significant extent, where instead of holding treasures on their central bank balance sheet, they hold gold and they hold euro-denominated assets. And then they're increasingly interested in selling oil in euros to Europe or and to China and other places. And so I think what we're seeing over time is a, a shift away from that system where only the dollar can be used to buy oil and where the dollar is a very large share of global central bank assets, where we'll have, say, regional reserve currencies where you have the dollar, you have the euro, you have the Chinese currency, and those will all be kind of regional currencies without kind of one central one. And so that that's kind of the way it goes if there's no central organization that kind of herds enough cats together to like update the SDR. Yeah, I think that's an excellent analysis. And I, I agree with most of it. And I think I, I'll just add that I think that there's obviously a huge political problem in trying to get the US and the Europeans and the Chinese to agree on a monetary policy. Imagine having the IMF. Who do you make in charge of interest rates? And how does that person get appointed? Who's going to be the Jay Powell of that system? But even putting aside the political problem, and even if we assume that, say, we get a new world superpower, whether it's the US and China or China, and they try and make the system work where it's primarily based around the interest of one country, 
either we're going to head towards a system where we have all the imbalances, it's going to recreate the current imbalances with the US, and it's going to take a few decades for that to emerge. But we're going to shift all of the imbalances to China, where the Chinese now don't work and don't produce, and their industrial sector gets destroyed, and then Americans go back to working factory jobs. But we're still getting the same kind of imbalance happening there. But if you try to do it as some kind of international system, ultimately, without something like gold underpinning that system, you're basically making stabs in the dark about monetary policy. So what is the value of this currency? How is it determined? How does the supply get determined? And how do the people who get to determine the supply get appointed? There's no easy economic answer for it. We use money for economic calculation. Any person who carries out an an economic transaction is carrying out that economic transaction using money as the um, numerator, as the unit of uh, calculation. But then when you make that value of that money as being uh, something that needs to be decided by a government, you mess it all around. As you said, when the US was big enough, it could kind of get away with that, but still created all those problems. But I don't see how it'll work in a multilateral world. And I can see it leading to a lot of conflict. So perhaps the Chinese might be able to pull something off like this, where their new central bank digital currency is more favorable to them, and they still manage to get the Americans and the Europeans to go along. And I'm just saying, hypothetically, if we do have something like that, it's still not going to be, we're still dealing with a monetary system that has no bearings. Without gold, without a hard asset that is out there on the market whose supply is not controlled by the monetary policy, then the monetary policy has nothing to go with and it's going to be very ugly. And if we have the regional currencies arrangement that you mentioned, I think also that's going to be very ugly because again, all of these regional currencies without a universal unit with which it can be measured, we're going to be witnessing a lot of economic miscalculation and we're going to be witnessing a lot of economic dislocations. Essentially, we're going to be reinstating barter. And this is what national currencies really are today. It's a form of barter across international borders. But at least currently with the current system, the barter effect is minimized because all currencies are, all national currencies are essentially today, in my mind, I like to call them the US dollar plus country risk. Your national currency is not going to appreciate beyond what the US dollar is appreciating. It's only going to go down compared to the dollar and it's going to go down compared to the dollar by the magnitude of your the country risk and is, is the way that I like to think about it. So at least economic calculation now can be done with the dollar because You have all these uh, dollars and quasi-dollars, if you want, that are being held out there. But if the dollar is gone and then we have all these fiat currencies out there circulating against each other, it's going to be really messy. How do you calculate prices? How do you calculate exchange rates? Monetary policy is constantly changing all along. And yeah, in my mind, I think that the only answer to this is Bitcoin. It's really, gold can work as an answer hypothetically if you had a bunch of angels in the world's governments. But I think that train has passed. We're out of angels in all world governments at this point. And so the only um, solution that works for me as a solution for the international monetary system is to base it around Bitcoin, is how I see it. Yeah, the way it worked before the bread and wood system is because you had that gold-based system. And the way that imbalances worked themselves out was with different exchange rates easing over time. And so, for example, if your economy was producing a lot more than it was importing, your currency would generally strengthen over time. And that would basically, the purchasing power of people in that country would improve and they would often start importing more. 
And eventually that system would kind of balance out. Whereas on the other hand, if your country was not exporting enough to keep up with its, its imports, eventually the currency would weaken, which would weaken the importing power of people in that country and basically force them to produce more. It also gives the incentive mechanism where suddenly they become a cheaper market for production. And so that kind of increases their competitiveness at, at producing things. And so you have that kind of natural balancing mechanism with gold at the center and then these other currencies kind of moving around each other. And one of the problems we've had, especially since the 1970s petrodollar system that's in place, is that we have this, this weird incentive for multiple countries to want to purposely devalue their currency compared to others because they want to keep their exports competitive as possible. And so, for example, we see countries like Switzerland, they literally just, they create more of their currency to buy foreign assets for the specific purpose of trying to prevent their currency from appreciating too much. And so it, it for many countries, it's a delicate balance where they obviously don't want to depreciate their currency so much that people at home really start to feel it and they can't import the things they want, but they also try to depreciate it so that their exports are competitive. And we've seen kind of China playing around with this where for a long time they wanted to have a you know very export-driven economy, and so they wanted to keep their currency suppressed. Uh, and then over time, as they've kind of shifted towards a middle-income country, they've wanted to kind of balance that out a little bit more. And so they've been doing a little bit less currency manipulations. And so the current system as structured basically has all these different players purposely trying to trying to devalue their currencies to basically boost their exports. And part of the reason why the United States, because the dollars at the axe in the system, the United States is one of the countries that's not really doing that. They're not, say, if you look at our foreign exchange reserves, we're not printing dollars to buy foreign assets. And so basically we're the ones that end up being the ones with the trade deficits because we're not intentionally devaluing our currency, at least with the same mechanism that the others are doing it. But when it comes time to say have a pandemic, the United States instead reduces their currency by doing bigger fiscal stimulus than these other countries as a percentage of GDP. And so overall, I agree that most systems have some sort of imbalance to them, especially if there's no kind of central neutral asset, whether it's something like gold or Bitcoin, and then it just becomes a matter of degrees. And so the current one, if, if it's centered around one country, you're likely to get these really big multi-decade imbalances, whereas if you have another system that's, that's kind of more decentralized, you have a lot of messy outcomes, but it generally prevents like a really big imbalance forming for decades. But instead you have a lot of these micro imbalances that keep sorting themselves out, but the system itself is just not very effective because like you said, it becomes a barter system where you have, say, three major units of account in the global system rather than one, and that just becomes this kind of balancing act that keeps shifting over time. And so that is the challenge of kind of each global monetary system constructed has advantages, but then it has flaws, and eventually those flaws outweigh the advantages, and it breaks down, and then you go towards a new system, and they're always accompanied by currency devaluations. And it's been one of the, the kind of the economic history we've gone through, and it's, been, it's always messy each time. Yeah, I, uh, I I couldn't agree more. Kane has a question he wants to ask. Kane, you want to go ahead? Yeah, thank you guys, Lynn and St. Dean, for doing these things and putting your information out. The one question I want to kind of talk about is a little bit Kathy Wood, a little bit Jeff Booth with technology playing a factor like it never has digitally before. So if we're kind of at one of these revolutions where the world just drastically changes, and I totally agree with the stuff you guys were just talking about, is possibly part of the problem that today, like no other period, you could start a business from your apartment bedroom that you rent with credit cards, have no inventory, very low to no overhead, don't have to have physical buildings, which means 
you essentially don't need a loan. So interest rates don't really have an impact on a large part of the economy today like they did. And the Fed just hasn't really figured out that main tool that they've been using to jockey currencies or economic output or inputs just no longer works. And they're kind of the last ones to figure that out. And so as soon as we shift, whether it be through CBDCs or Bitcoin or Ethereum or other currencies, is that how we kind of get back to an evolving group of people? Because humans generally always go up and to the right, even though there's various periods where we drop. Yeah, we're certainly... Yeah, certainly it's a trend I'm monitoring, especially as it relates to modeling out inflation versus deflation, because we have all these structural deflationary forces. So you have some more problematic ones like debt and demographics, but then of course you have technology deflation, which is the best, that's the good type of deflation, because you want to have your currency be able to buy more over time. And so if you look back, for example, in the late 1800s, when you had the Industrial Revolution, if you look at the United States, for example, broad money supply went up a ton but inflation was negative. You had deflation because you had just massive increases in productivity. And so you basically had, a, like say, Standard Oil was founded and you had the Intercontinental Railroad. You had creation of electricity and creation of the internal combustion engine. Uh, and that basically uh, freed humanity from a lot of types of work so they could develop other types of work. And so what we've seen since the late 90s is we've had the internet, we've had mobile internet, we've had automation. We've had offshoring, which has suppressed wages and basically done that labor arbitrage. And there have been winners of that environment because if you are a consumer that works primarily with information, if you work in healthcare, technology, finance, or government, you got a lot of benefits of that system, but you didn't really have the downside. Whereas if you worked in, say, if you were an American working in industrial production, you were harmed by that system because even though things got cheaper for you, your income was also impacted. And so one of the risks to watch out for is that periods of technological deflation generally happen in bursts. And when we're in periods of slow growth, we always assume that it's going to be slow growth. And when we're in periods of fast technological growth, we always assume they're going to persist. And they kind of hinge on certain uh, bottlenecks being broken. And so one of the things that will obviously uh, affect how long this period of technological deflation goes is something like the emergence of, of AI over time. And whereas some of the other things that we can mistake for uh, indefinite periods of deflation is if you look at, like I mentioned, the commodity cycle, where when we're in a, a period of abundant commodities, we often feel like it's going to last forever. Like we have more commodities than we need. We're in a disinflationary environment. How could we ever get inflation? And then eventually that period ends and you get more of those scarcity of commodities compared to what you need. And so I'm kind of viewing that where technology deflation is a big offsetter compared to all the monetary policy and fiscal policy that countries are doing, and it becomes that tug of war between those two forces. And so if you looked at the past 20 years, there has been a bigger than normal gap between, say, broad money supply growth and most measures of inflation. And part of that is because of that labor arbitrage and that automation and that capital-like business structure that you mentioned. But you know, I think eventually you, you potentially saturate how far you can go with that until we have the next round of big, big breakthroughs. And so that's, I kind of view that technology progression as lumpy rather than like a smooth exponential line. It comes in these bursts whenever we have like a revolutionary new technology. Yeah, I agree. And that kind of fits Ray Dalio's paradigm shifts where we get accustomed to one way. So an environment where rates go down, the world works. And now we're kind of in that transition period where, hey, rates can't just keep going down. We've got new technologies that create these 
new business models, which just means next generation skill sets are different. So maybe they're not factory workers. They're just monitoring what the outputs for a bull case to kind of get out of the mess. That seems to make sense to me. I'm just curious. Sounds like you're kind of looking at it, at least in that frame as well. Yeah, it's basically those two forces. It's like a immovable object versus an unstoppable force and kind of just measuring and mapping how, which kind of force is winning in any given year. And so the 2020 was the year where, where that the sheer amount of fiscal and monetary stimulus kind of overwhelmed that deflationary force for a period of time. And so it's kind of like each year just kind of seeing how the magnitudes of those two forces compare to each other. And we have become accustomed to a lot of these disinflationary forces of we've optimized our supply chain so much, but then we sacrificed resiliency in some ways. And so we're kind of now paying some of the cost for the lack of resiliency that we build into the system. We kind of have everything last minute. We have a high degrees of specialization where only a handful of countries even make semiconductors. And then suddenly we're, we have semiconductor shortages. And so basically as this plays out, if we kind of respond to this shock we've had and we make our systems more resilient, that cost could be that basically we take some of the efficiency away and shift a little bit more towards resiliency, which is generally an inflationary force, all else being equal. And so I, I think we have to be careful about extrapolating the current trajectory forever and seeing where, where does that kind of run into a bump and maybe reverse the other way for a period of time. The long arc of history is technology deflation keeps improving, but then you have these periods of time where it stalls or monetary policy and fiscal policy kind of temporarily override it. Yeah, and I think that's, you see that a lot in corporate cycles where they just cut to the bone so much in the workforce that then they have to add back. Does that make sense? Yeah. We've got a question from Browning. He's asking you, do you run a full node? And if so, do you develop metrics from it for proprietary analysis? I personally do not. It's something I intend to do. These past two years have been super busy for my business. And so I've kind of been pulled in so many different directions. And so it's something I am looking forward to doing at some point. But yeah, at the current time, I do not run a full node. Okay. And we've got another question from Keep It Simple Bitcoin. He's asking, could, that's a very good question. Could the commercial banks become another advocate for Bitcoin if we see central bank digital currency execution attempt to disintermediate commercial banks by having central banks distribute the CBDC directly to the population? Yeah, I think so. And, and we saw the interesting news of, for example, NYDIG partnering with banks to basically have customers at banks be able to buy Bitcoin through their banking relationship. And so uh, I do think over time, their incentives can shift to whatever's not trying to kill them as fast. There's always going to be some market for credit. There's bad types of credit. There's good types of credit. And we've been over-reliant on credit. But, you know, there's always a market for shifting around the time value of money and, and basically pulling forward capital for certain purposes. And so some degree of lenders will always be important. And the more that they can align themselves with technology, including Bitcoin, the better they can turn out. And so one of the proponents, like proponents of central bank digital currencies often point out that it allows these centralized areas to go around the banking system. And so basically banks can find themselves where historically they've kind of been very skeptical about Bitcoin and now they're kind of warming up to it. And I think part of it is because they see some of the alternatives and they say, well, like I'd rather choose this one than the one that's even more existential. And so I think it makes sense for banks to want to partner with Bitcoin. And even seeing the, the press releases about that NYDIG announcement, basically banks saw that they can monitor transactions that are happening and they see all, all this money flowing to Coinbase and other exchanges 
and they say, well, we want to retain that money. I mean, if we're not offering products and services that people want, what can we do to change that? And so we've seen a sudden shift where as Bitcoin's become a trillion dollar asset, and as education around Bitcoin has grown, and I think more people working at banks, I mean, I, I gave a presentation to a bank uh, a board of directors, and they're aware of things like the stock to flow model and stuff at this point. I mean, some of them are on Twitter. And so basically, as education seeps out into these bank boards, they say, okay, how can we retain this in our firm rather than just, just getting our market share eaten by these new companies? They want to be the companies rather than get displaced by them. Yeah, I, I think I agree. It's uh, it's just an interesting dynamic. Uh, a lot of the early Bitcoin rhetoric was all about uh, screw the banks and we're going to replace the banks. We're going to get rid of banks. And people like me have been beating the drum for a few years that the real enemy is the central banks. Banking is just a normal human business that has existed under any kind of money. And the reason that it is such a mess right now is uh, because it is corrupted by a monopoly central bank. So it'll be very fascinating to see this. And I think banks are witnessing just the enormous amounts of money that are being made by exchanges by collecting Bitcoin fees. And there's no reason why they should give that business up. And this is the business that you mentioned, the news that you mentioned on NYDIG effectively allows people to disintermediate exchanges. So now you can have your Bitcoin on your bank account. And if you want to take it out and withdraw it to your own wallet, you withdraw it directly from NIDIG. So basically you're buying Bitcoin from your own bank account. You don't need to set up an account on an exchange and you don't need to use a wire transfer to send the money to the exchange and then get it lost and pay fees and all of that stuff. It's fascinating. And I think the more that central banks print money and hand out money in UBI, um, the more Bitcoins, the the more Bitcoiners and Bitcoin businesses are going to <laughs> develop just amazing catchment technologies for sucking up all of that fiat and converting it into uh, proper money like Bitcoin. It's, it's 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 modern alchemy, and it'll be fascinating watching what banks do. And yeah, in the history, I mean, banks. One of the places historically to buy gold was at banks, and, and it kind of banks developed out of the whole gold market. And so, even when they became established, I mean, you could generally go to your bank, and one of the services they they could do is is sell you gold. And so, we're in an environment now where the typical bank account does not offer a yield that keeps up with the prevailing inflation rate, and so their product is inherently disadvantaged. They're basically the the, the the, what a bank used to offer was, hey, deposit your funds with us. Uh, you'll earn interest. You'll be able to save over time. And now they, they can't offer that. They're saying, basically, we can give you pennies, on, not even pennies on the dollar, really. And so they don't really have that. But if they can offer something like Bitcoin and they say, okay, you can keep your checking account with us. You can pay your bills with it. But then also you can save in Bitcoin if you'd prefer. And that basically lets them keep that banking connection. And so they're interested, obviously, in keeping the fees associated with that. But then even from a loss leader perspective, if they can just retain that banking relationship by maybe they break even on their ability to offer Bitcoin, for example, when it comes time for someone to want to do a mortgage, take out a mortgage or something like that, they often go to their existing banking relationship. And so they basically want to do whatever they can to remain relevant for people rather than that their service just dwindles over time, as you've seen, especially in, say, European banks with even lower interest rates where it's at the point where some people are charged money to have their money in, uh, deposited in the bank, which is extremely unattractive for both the bank and for the, the person depositing it. Yeah, absolutely. Kane seems to have a follow-up question. Kane, you want to go ahead and ask it? Yeah, just saying one of the concerns in the Bitcoin community or maybe outside is that, hey, what happens when the block reward basically goes away and it's just fees? Either fees have to go up drastically or miners leave and then the network 
could die off. And it seems to me that Bitcoin is a base layer, like Nick Batia says, is a great book to combat that with people moving away from banks because they're not really offering products that consumers want, that they just become mining operators, set up nodes, they process transactions much like Southern Company or Georgia Pacific or whatever transacts power. And then the fintech companies give us the consumer products we really want, we really use on a day-to-day basis. Like Apple, Apple doesn't process the power, but they build the product that we want to use and they sell that and it uses the power in the house. Seems like a good balance to kind of solve that potential future problem that at some point has to be looked at, but isn't now because there's enough in the reward to keep, you know, just any mining pool going after. Does does that seem to make sense as a possible way that it all comes together without one side or the other getting blown up? I think but to some extent, and one of the things I wrote an article on that change from block subsidies to fees, because that's, I try to identify long-term risks for a thesis that I have. And so when I look at Bitcoin, I, I try not to assume like this is predestined to work. It's like, okay, where are the stages where this project could fail? And so right now it's been wildly successful for 12 years. And then saying, okay, what are the remaining tail risks that could prevent this ongoing monetization that we're seeing in the Bitcoin network? And so one of them is that it still has to navigate that transition from primarily relying on block subsidies for security to having a, a, a permanent fee market that is able to sustain its security. And so when I just looked at that whole thing quantitatively, Generally, you see over time that as Bitcoin grows, the percentage spent on security goes down, which is good because as the asset you know, gets very mature, you need less percentages of it to basically have sufficient security. There's a big open question about what is the ideal percentage, uh, and it's going to be market-driven, so the market's going to uh, decide, and, and we'll see how that plays out. Uh, but basically, Bitcoin needs to reach a sustainable level where the, the blocks are consistently full. And so there's competition for that space and therefore that there's some degree of positive fees there at pretty much all times. And there's, I kind of modeled out that fees don't have to be super high in order that, for that to be sustainable, especially when you have things like the Lightning Network or, or even some other more centralized ways of, of doing exchanges like a banking relationship where if you can batch transactions together, then individual transactions can still be reasonably priced and yet there still can be a, a reliable fee market. And so it's something that I don't view that there's insurmountable problems with Bitcoin developing a, a fee market. It's just kind of a risk that I'm watching. It's something that has to be navigated. And it just remains kind of something that I keep on your radar to see how healthy is the fee market? How is that developing? And there certainly is an incentive for custody providers to want to maintain security of the network. And so basically the way Bitcoin is designed is that it primarily puts the onus on as you have the block subsidies, then more of the onus is on the holders of the coins, because basically you are having a, a mild inflation rate that is happening. And so basically the existing holders are kind of paying for security in that sense. But over time, that security kind of shifts towards the people doing the transactions, because as, as Bitcoin's inflation rate uh, drops to near zero, it's no longer the holders that are paying for security, it's the transactors. But some of the holders still have an indirect incentive because they want to make sure that their investment retained its monetary premium. They want to maintain the health of the network. And so you could see custodians kind of involved in making sure that Bitcoin security remains robust. Fantastic. Who else has got more questions? Anybody have more questions? Yeah, Michael Saylor is pretty casual 
He has analysis, but he's casual about seeing Bitcoin and the U.S. dollar living together. As a matter of fact, he sees them living together pretty comfortably, if I understand him correctly. I know safety's not in agreement with that. Lynn, do you see any possibility of that happening? So I think that's one of the possible futures, and that goes back to you can have a reserve asset that's different than the the medium of exchange that happens. And so basically, if you go back to, say, a gold standard period, gold was the underlying asset and that there were still currencies kind of tied to it and that were basically used. The coins were, say, silver. You had bills that were backed up by gold. And so you can have an environment where central banks hold Bitcoin, the people save in Bitcoin, and but they that basically they're still using domestic currencies for transactions. And that partially comes down to what backs a fiat currency is a government's ability to tax in that currency and to put taxes on other sort of transfers. And so one of the things that's currently kind of a hurdle for Bitcoin payments is the fact that, that those transactions are taxable events. And so that's one of the ways that a currency tries to maintain monopoly status on being a medium of exchange is they say, okay, you know, we're a unit of account. We're going to tax any other transaction that happens. If you buy and sell gold, if you buy and sell Bitcoin, you're going to pay capital gains taxes. And that they say when it comes time to pay your taxes, the only thing they're payable in is that currency. And so if you're in the United States, you got to pay dollars. If you're in Japan, you got to pay yen for your taxes. And so that can work up as long as there's no outright currency failure. And so when you see emerging markets, certain ones that have currency failures, you start to see, say, black markets in dollars develop because the, the public loses confidence in that currency. And so even though they're still trying to retain monopoly power over their currency, the, the people have enough of a public opinion against that currency where they, they start to kind of ignore that. And so unless you reach that point where people no longer have faith in that currency at all, it can coexist for a long time. And I think how long that plays out and, and all the different ways that play out, I still think are an open question that I think is, is worth monitoring over time. But I think the point is you can have an asset that is that you save in that is not necessarily the same asset that you transact in on a regular basis. So does that suggest then that Bitcoin may act as a governor on inflation and therefore government spending? Well, it partially. So basically, if governments find that their currencies are inflating too much, then that is one of the limiters for how much fiscal spending they can do. And so after the 1940s, for example, the reason they shifted more towards austerity is because they were beginning to view inflation as a problem. And then the same thing when the 70s, as inflation was a problem, they were basically forced to raise rates to a very high degree and basically put the economy into a recession, basically to, to kind of retain the value of that money. And so if you were to have periods where demand for that currency is weak because people would rather save in other assets, and then the velocity of that currency increases a lot, that can start a spiral where it kind of reigns them in. It's historically challenging for domestic markets to experience very rapid inflation because there's so much debt that's denominated in those currencies. And that debt, ironically, ends up being a form of demand for those currencies because the only way to satisfy those debts is to get those currency units to pay off those debts. Uh, and so we often see hyperinflation in one of two cases. Either you have a market where their productive capacity was destroyed by war or social upheaval of some sort, or you have these types of emerging markets where the liabilities they have are denominated in a currency they can't print. 
So you have something like Argentina that has dollar-based debts and they can't print those dollars. And so no, no matter how much they print, they, they can't make the liabilities go away other than outright default. And then people trust that currency less and it hyperinflates. And so overall, I currently view Bitcoin more as that store of value and then the option to use it as a payment network rather than something I'm currently modeling as displacing, say, domestic currencies. All right. Uh, keep it simple. Bitcoin is the name of uh, the person who's going to be asking the next question. Go ahead. Hi, Lynn. Thanks so much for your time. A, a lot of concern I get from people, they have this, they're trying to navigate their way through Bitcoin versus all these other things because there's some, every cycle, there's so much hype. So do you see viability for other, quote unquote, other blockchains, disintermediating or adding value to interactions people have with the more traditional financial assets, stock, bonds, equity, ownership, derivatives, et cetera? Or do you think that it's Bitcoin and layer twos, lightning, side chains, discrete law contracts that will really fill in the value proposition for almost everything? So I think the burden of proof is on altcoins to justify themselves because they're, they're going against a, a very bad track record. I try not to be in a position where I'm trying to prove a negative by asserting that no other alt token can succeed. And so, for example, if you look at operating systems today, there's not a million operating systems, but there's a handful of operating systems. And so you can have an environment where Bitcoin is the primary one, and then you have a couple of other blockchains that are specialized in doing other things, and you kind of have value accrual go up to, say, the top three blockchains, but that those other ones are more they're not really like hard money-like. They're more like utility tokens. The, the, the challenging thing about a utility token is that there's, there's pretty low switching costs. And so, for example, I think one of the, the useful use cases of these tokens is stable coins, because as long as multiple financial systems coexist, you have an environment where they want to apply blockchain to fiat currencies, basically to get some of the benefits of a blockchain, but it's still tied to a fiat currency. And so stable coins have a, a pretty significant use at the current time. Any sort of blockchain that can host those stable currencies is playing a useful role. But then as you've seen over time, stable coins keep migrating to whatever chain is cheapest. And so earlier, they used to be tied to Bitcoin through the Omni. And then we've seen they've migrated towards uh, Ethereum. And then as Ethereum fees got very high, we just saw, for example, now there's like more Tether on Tron than on Ethereum especially for people trying to do smaller transactions. And so basically all these, if you have, if you're kind of sacrificing certain features in order to, basically if you're sacrificing decentralization to, in order to enhance certain features, the problem is that another protocol can come along and have even more centralization and do it even more efficiently. And you kind of have that so that stable coins and things like that keep migrating to whatever is cheapest. And so it's really hard for those utility protocols to, kind of create enough of a permanent moat or network effect to protect themselves against all these competitors that can arise. And so we keep seeing this cycle where whenever Bitcoin does well, altcoins do even better. But then when the bear market comes, most of those get obliterated and then when, and Bitcoin holds up. And then when the next cycle comes, Bitcoin reaches new highs and 99.9% .9 of those other altcoins never come back to where they were during that peak. And so... I, I don't preclude the possibility of, of other blockchains coexisting and, and doing something different from, say, being money, but really the onus of proof is on them to, to basically show why that they're going to be able to retain value against onslaughts of just ongoing competition out there. Thanks.
Yeah, I agree. And then we've got a question from Browning. I think this is going to have to be the last one we do. What is your opinion on government potential ban on Bitcoin? So I think it depends on the country in question. We've seen banning proposals more often in emerging markets just because they are more prone to currency crises and more concerned about kind of blocking some of the exits where possible. In the United States or Europe or Japan, it's more challenging to do a ban because you have more safeguards against that sort of thing, right? And so, but in the United States, for example, the precedent for it is the fact that they banned gold for like 40 years. And so it's kind of funny that they banned a non-dangerous inert metal from people owning it just because in order, you know, kind of protect the monetary system. And so I don't rule it out of the realm of possibility that they'll attempt to do so. But overall, the direction we're seeing is that regulators have become increasingly aware of Bitcoin. And they, if anything, they've been clarifying and, and helping regulations. Their main view is that they want to be able to track it to some extent. And they also want to make sure that they get their taxes on it while it remains in this current kind of configuration. And so we've seen that the direction's not been towards banning. It's really been towards, in their view, trying to just make sure they know who has it. And so they've been trying to do KYC regulations and things like that, employing those firms that can do analytics to find out and see who owns it and who they have to go after for tax purposes, where there's not been a lot of movement in these major countries towards banning it. So I view that as a lower tail risk that's out there, something to kind of monitor to see what they do, to see if they kind of try to chip away at Bitcoin through things like trying to make it harder to self-custody or things like that, or kind of like selectively raising taxes, specifically on Bitcoin. I think one of the narratives to watch is the idea that they might use ESG mandates to say, put higher taxes on something like Bitcoin. And so there, there's kind of ways that they can try to like make it a incentive to hold it. It's hard to outright ban information. I mean, ultimately Bitcoin is, you, you can have a 12 word phrase that you memorize in your head and you own Bitcoin. And so it's, it's challenging for them to outright ban. And then especially the larger Bitcoin gets, the larger percentage of the public that owns it, the more large institutions and donor class people that are invested in Bitcoin in some way, the more they can influence politics to basically avoid outright bans and things like that. And so basically the bigger it gets, the more the harder it is for them to ever do much about it. Yeah, I think I agree. All right. Thank you so much, Lean, for your time and for all of these insights. It was a very enjoyable and uh, edifying discussion. And thanks to everybody who joined. And uh, we'll see you in the next seminar on uh, Monday. Thank yep, you. Thanks. thanks for having me. Nice meeting you and nice meeting everyone that, that came today. Cheers. Thanks a lot.